Hello and welcome to this special episode of Foodlands, hosted by Santa Ana University, Pisa. Huge thanks to Camilla Moonen, one of our guests, and also convener of this roundtable discussion. Dr. Moonen is from the Agroecology Group at Santa Ana. Alexandra and Camilla are joined in this episode by Andrea Genai, an expert in protected areas management, forest conservation and environmental communication at the beautiful Forest Cassentinesi National Park and the University of Pisa. And Diego Ridotti, CEO of the Agritech company AIDID. Bringing a farming perspective this episode is Lorenzo Costa. Lorenzo is a farmer and a permaculture systems designer, active across social media and also across divides in contemporary farming. Together, they discuss all sorts of fascinating angles and funny anecdotes exploring how we might create a life-supporting food system that brings agriculture and conservation sustainability aims closer together. So here we are for this very special episode hosted by Santana School of Advanced Studies that's in Pisa and it's on the invitation of Camilla. So I'd just like to invite Camilla if we can to say two, three sentences about Santana. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so welcome everybody to this virtual round table discussion. Um, Santana School of Advanced Studies, it's a very small but growing university and we are mainly focusing on applied sciences like political sciences, law, management, economics, biorobotics, communication technologies, medicine and agricultural sciences, of course. And we are located in Pisa and this is right in the heart of Tuscany. And in a way, this region depicts perfectly well what we're going to talk about today. And why do I think Tuscany is, is really a place that puts all this together? Um, so Tuscany is a, has a landscape that is well known for gently sloping hills that are covered with a wide variety of crops, such as pastures, cereals, vineyards, olive groves, vegetable crops, and if you want, you can find sheep grazing in group stubbles. And when you raise your eyes, you find always a piece of woodland at the horizon. And so this rural area is intermingled with natural areas. And Tuscany hosts also um, quite a number of important natural parks. And one of these is, for example, the Casentinese Forest National Park. So in this region, agriculture and biodiversity have developed and evolved together and continue to live side by side, not always in harmony, but um, in any case with mutual respect. And um, in Pisa, we host these three universities. Um, Santana School of Advanced Studies is one of them. And the engineering departments are very well known around the world. So, I think it's very nice to discuss this um, subject about biodiversity farming in Pisa, where we have this in Tuscany, where we have this very special um, coming together of these three different roads. Thank you, Camilla. And that's specifically what we're going to be talking about with this roundtable, trying to bridge between different practices. And specifically, the question that we're going to be looking at is what tools and practices can bring 
conservation priorities on one hand and agricultural priorities together on the other hand to face the biodiversity crisis in our European rural landscapes. And so for that we've brought together a whole diversity of guests recommended to us by Santana and by Camilla and I'd just like to invite each one of you to briefly introduce yourself and tell us perhaps why you do what you do and which side of this issue are you coming from? Are you coming from the conservation side of things or from the agricultural side of things? Yeah, so my name is Camila Mora and I'm a researcher. And since I was a child, I wanted to study nature, but always in relation to some human activities. And in the end, I ended up studying landscape ecology applied to agricultural landscapes. And I did this at the Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And Lorenzo, would you like to introduce yourself from the side of a farmer, perhaps? Thank you, Alexandra. Thanks you to hello to everybody that is listening. Uh, my name is Lorenzo Costa. I am, um, uh, well, I do a lot of things in my life. I'm a technician in the University of Siena in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical and chemical department. And I actually studied contemporary history. And five years ago, I decided to start a farm near Siena in Tuscany. And uh, I decided to apply um, a specific design system, which is permaculture. I'm a permaculture designer. And I mostly work on uh, reading the landscape and um, working on rainwater harvesting. And um, permaculture is substantially a systems thinking, um, ethical uh, system of design. We design sustainable, efficient, uh, resilient and uh, stable ecosystems. And uh, this is mostly what I do in my life now because I'm divided between university and farming. And my farm is uh, designed applying permaculture as a framework and using agroecology as a technique. We'll get most specifically maybe afterwards into this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, an interesting journey. Andre, would you like to take over? My name is Andre Genai. I'm a forest engineer and I started to work for national and regional parks uh, when I was 21 years old, studying forestry. And so uh, since that day, uh, I worked for 30 years, because now, now I'm 51, uh, continuously for nature, for protection, for conservation. So I speak from a very special point of view, because my goal is conservation. And doing that, I uh, daily uh, manage the problems with uh, agriculture, with the use of land, also silviculture. And I will tell you that I discovered that uh, agriculture in, in conservation is not a problem, but is a very, um, a very big tool to make conservation. But I will explain later this point. Thank you, Andrea. And if I'm not mistaken, you also work in broadcast. Is that right? Yes, working for national parks, I had, <laughs> I had the opportunity to to collaborate with the national TV with a, um, a broadcast called Geo, uh, speaking about uh, conservation in regional national parks and also about forests. So this is another point of view 
uh, explaining that themes to the people, to the normal people that on, in the afternoon are looking at TV programs is not easy and, and we have to manage that. Yeah, that very much speaks to us on the podcast. We've spoken to a lot of people who do communications in science and journalism in science, and that's the prime mission that we need to take today. Fabulous. And then just to close, I'd like to invite Diego to introduce yourself. Yes. Hello, everybody. I am Diego Guidotti. I have a personal background on uh, related to agriculture. My grandparents, they were sharecropper, very tough type of agriculture. And uh, I have to promise them that I will not become a farmer. So I had to study agriculture because farming was not an option for them. And so I, I, I study uh, in high school and in uh, university agriculture. And then I, I'm a, quite a nerd. So I like uh, digital technology, information technology. So I started to mix these two interests together. So I'm uh, working, uh, I have a company working on developing digital solution for farmers and for agriculture in general. And so I try to, to combine these two different worlds, the, the digital solution, tech, information technology, and agriculture together. Thank you so much, Diego. And really, it's exceptional to get that little bit of personal background story about your grandparents. I look forward to looping back to that. So just to begin on our first question, uh, to address this, these different ways that we're going to bridge conservation and agricultural priorities in the landscape, we can, we can fairly say that historically, from a conservation point of view, people have thought that agriculture kind of disrupts the natural world. In the birth of the conservation movement itself, nature was considered as something that needed to be protected from human activity, particularly in the USA. So in this perspective, agricultural landscapes and natural reserves are imagined as really separate spaces. And for the public, when we think about biodiversity, we think it only exists in these nature reserves. We, we think specifically about these very charismatic animals we see on TV. But all of a sudden, if we think about this concept, a concept like agrobiodiversity, and think about aiming to have more agro-biodiverse landscapes, it kind of shifts this perspective and we can think that we need to enrich and favor biodiversity in our farming landscapes. So is that a way of tackling the divide between farmers and conservationists? Camilla, you're the person who introduced to me this concept of agro-biodiversity. When were you first introduced to this term and why do you think this world is important to understand your work as an agroecologist today? <laughs> well, I cannot remember when exactly I first came across this term of agro-biodiversity, but um, I think it has always been of interest to me because as I said before, I've always been interested in nature, but seen in relation to human activities. And agrobiodiversity is that part of the biodiversity that is responsible for either directly responsible for the production of food, feed or bioenergy, or that is able to support farming activities for production. So if you see it in this way, it's the agrobiodiversity that is a clear bridge between nature and farming. Um, because where farming is done in respect of nature, um, agrobiodiversity will thrive and it will um, 
it will improve the local biodiversity and it will enrich the entire um, agricultural landscape. I'm just going to jump directly to Lorenzo. Do you think that, Lorenzo, do you think that there's a way of practicing agriculture itself, which not only respects the landscape around, but which itself is biodiverse? Uh, absolutely, I do. Um, uh, we, I mean, I think as a permaculture designer, thinking in systems, we design starting from natural patterns. We study uh, ecosystems, we study the way ecosystems function. And applying permaculture design to um, an agricultural uh, project, uh, I do believe that uh, agriculture is actually um, possible. Uh, growing food is possible, uh, respecting nature and uh, actually fitting into the ecosystem. I mean, if I think about the fact that we 80% now, the percentage may not be important, but I mean, nearly 80% of biodiversity on our planet is actually protected by indigenous and traditional cultures. And um, mostly, obviously, in, not, in, in other continents, not so much in Europe, where we can't speak uh, precisely of indigenous and traditional cultures, but we still have them. Uh, I mean, they are still here, even in Europe. And um, so my thing of starting the farm and uh, being a farmer was to understand what traditional culture I had in Chianti. And so I studied local history and actually I came to, um, I mean, I, I was, um, I built the knowledge that the fact that we had in Chianti, especially cultura promiscua, which means growing in polycultures between perennial and annual plants and growing these plants in an ecosystem that is um, that you look at as a system. So in my from my point of view, um, speaking about conservation, speaking about agrobiodiversity is something that is not uh, uh, far from me. It's actually what I do every day as a practice uh, growing food in this landscape. When you introduced yourself, Andrea, you said that your goal is conservation. And just as I was saying, historically, it's not immediately that a conservationist would get involved with farmer. And indeed, it's not every day that we meet a farmer like Lorenzo, who not only comes from a contemporary history background, but also works in chemistry labs every day and gets to give us this kind of almost philosophical approach to what being a farmer can really mean on a on a in daily life and on a very moral, ethical level. Did you yourself encounter some farmers like that? Was there maybe like a first person that you met in your journey as a conservationist that made you think that really you can't do conservation without talking to farmers? Yes, as I told you, talking about protected areas, we have to consider very special goals First of all, conservation. We have no, we have not development as a goal. And I want to be rude and provocating, uh, but I must say that uh, my job, I, I am paid to make conservation. And so, in this, from this point of view, could be that at the beginning we started as as protected areas, we started to work trying to put men outside agriculture farming outside of the park because we need to do conservation. Mm. But slowly in the decades, we, we started to understand 
that some kind, not every kind of farming, are not sustainable, but are really um, tools to make our conservation. Just to do an example, in, in the Apennine, we have um, open areas, grasslands, disappearing very, very quickly because the, the lack of activities by, by human. Uh, and if the forest is coming back, that could be seen as a good thing, but that is not because they are ecosystems that need to be protected. Uh, Europe asked that, and also the Italian legislation asked to protect the grasslands. And the, the best way to do that is to use farming, to use cattle, to use cows that go on that field and eat the grass. But this is a very special kind of farming because it's very hard, expensive, nobody wants to do that. So we as natural parks are starting to help this kind of farming, uh, asking them to grow uh, local breeds uh, of cows, for example, uh, and to make a, a very good product. Uh, I'm talking about meat in this case, because this kind of de development is what we need to maintain, to conserve this kind of habitats without spending money. So uh, I'm proud to say that after some years, we understood in Italy now, we, we know that very well, that we have to, to make agreement with this kind of uh, agriculture because they are what we, we need to, to reach our, our goals. On the same hand, at the same moment, there are some other kinds of agriculture that are not sustainable and useful. And so sometimes I see the politicians that say, oh, the, the human presence is very important, but we have to choose. We have to, to know what is useful and what is not. Since many kinds of agriculture uh, are useful for us for conservation, we have a big choice. And we, we, we can choose, we have uh, the possibility to work on several uh, cases, but not with everyone. Because some in some kind of use of land, we have big problems with farmers. But at the moment, I can say that many farmers of uh, the park where I work, actually, uh, at the beginning were enemies. We, we discussed very strongly, and now we are friends because we fight together uh, for something that are common purpose. Yeah, and we're really going to get to address this question of the passion, of the battle sometimes that can oppose farmers um, and conservationists um, in just a moment. But um, I, I really liked what you said, that you really make a distinction between this idea of sustainable agriculture and agriculture that is, is not even sustainable. It's just fundamental to um, making a landscape exist and conserving a landscape and protecting a landscape. Um, but you also said that it's it's harrowing work. It's It's really difficult. And I sometimes think to myself that as, as a young person, 
who just finished a history degree um, and it was a history of agriculture degree. So I, I realized, OK, we need people on the land to, to create these landscapes. But I was like, who's going to do it? And you look around and you look at how hard a work it is, especially if you're going to have an attention to local practices. And sometimes you panic. You're like, who's going to do that? And, and I think that um, the question of how we support these farmers comes in quite strong. Um, and because we're in the 21st century and it's not necessarily a question of going back to ancestral practice in whole, but going forward with these practices, um, we have people like Diego who, who, who do work to support um, practices um, through tools like biodiversity monitoring. Diego, do you want to tell us a little bit about how, what kind of tech tools you can deploy to help and accompany farmers in their work? Yes, there are several tools. Uh, it is, you know, it's an interesting period because the, the digital tools and the, the data available, it's increasing. And so there are a lot of uh, new technologies that, you, that we can use uh, in agriculture. It's interesting to highlight that uh, there is no one type of agriculture. We have different type of agriculture, uh, different crop with different impact and uh, also different uh, objective for and different farmers so we have uh, usually it happens to us to work with the farmers that were very open to agroecology and they study a lot they want to try a new technology to maintain the the biodiversity of their farm so with them there is a lot of work to understand uh, to provide them tools to get a better decision and to uh, assess how good is going so it, there is an actual improvement of my soil condition over time and uh, this is something that they're really interested for us but then we have a lot of farmers that are mainly uh, that are not directly involved in uh, agrobiodiversity you know there is uh, the the agrobiodiversity is a very generic terms there is also you know the genetic variability of uh, cultivated crops so for a lot of farmers working on agrobiodiversity is to plant uh, different varieties of beans <laughs> instead of and how to uh, discuss with them and how to 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 start to uh, propose some practices to manage also the landscape agrobiodiversity uh, is something that's interesting but we need to uh, show them uh, they have a very utilitarian mindset so we need to start to discuss with them proposing solution that can help their production and that can help their, uh, their um, also marketing activities. So for this type of farmer that uh, they're, uh, they're not skeptical but per se, but they, are, uh, they need to be convinced. It's very important to provide solution to prove them that some agroecological practices can uh, improve the sustainability of their activities. And then also an interesting part uh, is also how these, uh, the management of agrobiodiversity can support also uh, the, their uh, production and the marketing of the, their production. So uh, to give a specific certification uh, to sell in other country for different, uh, different type to increase the, 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 the number of customers of the quality of customers. So this is also something that can be used. Yeah, and we're going to be looking at specifically the kind of product that you can create with these approaches and how you can label it a bit later on. But I'm curious, and uh, I'm curious, um, Diego, do you um, do you 
get a chance to talk to these uh, farmers who maybe are more entering into the market of agrobiodiversity? Do you also offer products that helps them have an in? Maybe these farmers that you were talking about who consider that agrobiodiversity is to plant different kinds of beans in a field, which is already a progress. Um, Do you also talk to them and propose tools for their practices and their views? Yes, uh, I think it's interesting also the exchange. Uh, so uh, a farmer is more interesting to talk with another farmer than working with me that I'm a, a digital solution provider. So uh, uh, probably uh, it's better when they see something from other farmers, there is uh, a lot of interest. Uh, so and another problem is that I'm working a lot with uh, conventional farming and also uh, the, 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 the development of new digital solution Usually, they are built uh, within mine some very uh, com- com- some very traditional uh, and high um, you know uh, with high productivity targets uh, type of farmers. So I think there is also a challenge to adapt some uh, digital solution that exists, like you know model decision support system, uh, farm manager information system, and to try to adapt them to be used in farmer using agroecological practices. Uh, just to make an example, when you use a software to describe uh, what is uh, how is the farm structure using in one field, you can put only one crop. So mixed cropping cannot be managed with that type of tools. So I think that's also, uh, it's important to stress uh, um, provider of tools about agriculture to try to incorporate in the tools uh, the possibility to manage also to have this uh, traditional but innovative now at this stage uh, type of uh, farmers. So also this is some interesting things to discuss. Mm, Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. I think that just for a moment we're going to take a little bit of a rewind and we're going to try to go to the root of that big conflict and divide between conservationists and farmers and I'm just going to come back to you Andrea you who is um, our conservationist today in the round table and uh, and you spoke about the very beginning of your relationship with the farmers in the Apennines in the grasslands where you were working and how that started you were enemies at the very beginning do you want to tell us about that story yeah, the conflicts uh, start start when uh, we have no time to to talk each other, and that's what happened uh, at the beginning of an, uh, in a protected area of the management. Uh, we we write the rules, and you start to say this, you cannot do this and this, but you have no time to to stay. Maybe uh, having a coffee or spending some time in the field with, with the farmers to, to, to understand their problems, their point of view, and to explain yours. And so you need time and you need people. And that's what we miss. And national parks, we are, we are very few people and we have not time to, to, to stay with the, the farmers. But after that, when you understand it and you spend time with them and you fight together, uh, you become uh, the same thing. And, and we have many examples here. For example, the first year I worked here in the National Park, I met the farmer um, living of chestnut. Uh, and he had problems with the 
wild boars, and he was really, really upset against the park. Uh, and we started to work together, um, for example, catching uh, red deers to send them in other national parks in Italy. Uh, because they needed to, to put, again, red deers. And so we didn't control the number of, of deers. And the, the problems with chestnuts uh, are still there. But just working together to, to, to try to, to, to solve the problem uh, was the, the, the beginning, of course, the beginning of the solution. Um, and then he understood that we were waiting for the wolves that are the, the best way to control the number of red deers in a national park. And that, that is what is happening now. So we convinced him that wolves are not enemies, but are part of the ecosystem. And you need time to wait for that. But after that, it works. And that's what's, what, what is happening. So. He is also our friend now for communication. And that is, that is the uh, other big, big tool. So farmers are not only people that have to grow something. They, they must need us to make communication with volunteers, with uh, tourists. So we bring tourists and we, we go in the, to the farmers and talk with them. And we, we exchange experiences between us. And the, the power of a farmer explaining how it's important to have the wolf in a national park is really bigger than what I can do as a public uh, person that works for a national park. So they are our colleagues. We, we should pay them. Also to, to, to build the landscape, you know, what to, to work about quality of the food that the, the tourists will, will find in this territory. And they are uh, another instrument to explain this because they grow that uh, food. Yeah, unfortunately, we really we don't have the space in this podcast to address the issue of wolves in, in national parks and shepherds, which is also a really big issue here in France. And such a good question. And it just speaks to the power of being able to share in an issue like you were just saying, Andrea, and, and manage to really get the farmer on your side and to understand that you're really working with the same stakes. Um, and there's also an economic dimension to this idea of becoming colleagues and working towards the same ends. But before we move on to uh, maybe how you can support each other and how you can add value to the products um, by working collaboratively. Um, when you were speaking about the deers and the fact that the farmer realized at some point that you were trying to monitor um, the deer population that it wasn't decreasing because you didn't yet have wolves, but it just came to this kind of scientific um, fact, the fact that maybe you weren't against against him and kind of moved out of this passionate debate. Um, and I remember Camilla once spoke to me um, about perhaps using biodiversity monitoring tools as kind of policing tools in a sense, just to show that these may be passionate debates, but that scientific data can really support um, the collective effort for more di biodiversity. Uh, Camilla, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you think 
um, data might be able to kick into issues like big mammals um, in farmlands and in natural reserves. Yeah, well, of course, um, it, it's always the first point is always that um, people that do farming for a living, they have to earn a living. So that is something that we um, always need to remember when we talk to farmers um, about doing something a little bit different from just farming. Um, and um, I think that is something that scientists and um, policymakers and um, many other people with very good um, ideas um, need to really keep into mind that a farmer is a farmer and he needs to earn a living with that. And if we keep that into mind, then I think we still have a very large space to um, to have a dialogue with farmers about um, doing activities that can also help um, nature conservation and developing um, biodiversity on farms. And as a scientist, of course, I strongly believe that scientific evidence is um, is fundamental, and also the lack of scientific evidence, um, for the same reason. I mean, that's that's also evidence, and I think that this evidence or the lack thereof is very important. It can be a very important tool to either smoothen. Um, strong or one-sided opinions and beliefs that are in some way fed by just gut feeling. If opinions are a little bit fed by gut feeling, um, then that often results in conflicts. And I do agree with Andrea that um, the conflicts very often um, also are born from um, lack of time to to really talk together, as he said, and I think he he had some very good examples. So if you if you spend time together, you really start to understand each other, and these these very um, strong sided opinions they start to kind of the the, the, the edges start to um, to get smoother, and that is of course very very important. Um, and on top of that. I think that scientific evidence can can help us. And for me, if I think about that, um, when we talk about nature, there is not one truth. Like there's not one answer, one thing that is good, one thing that is bad. Nature is very diverse and nature interacts with people. So solutions will always be very diverse because it depends on this interaction between nature and the, the human activities and the, the character of the humans in that specific area. So it's also something that is very locally adapted. But in this a complex situation, I see science as like a prisma that tries that dissects white and invisible light into a beautiful rainbow. And science therefore can show all the white and the different colors that are in nature and the different ways in which farming and nature can be together. Yeah, I mean, it, it is gorgeous. And 
some some scientists really managed to do that for us to just give us back the hope by showing the diversity of life that is incarnated in nature and i think that some farmers really have that power too sometimes when they know how to look around their farm and how to share the intricacy of their work and all the thinking that underlies it there's something in common there and it it makes me just have so many questions um for lorenzo who's our in-house farmer for this roundtable, um, but who's in a little bit of a specific situation in the sense that, Lorenzo, if, if I'm not wrong, um, you don't rely entirely on your farm's production in order to make a living. Is that right? Yes, for now, because it's I just started, uh, let's say, actually producing food in the last three years. Yeah. And it's... Uh, So, yeah, uh, but I would like to just work on, on my farm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Um, do, do you think that this is kind of a, a privileged position, like a helpful position to come at like the whole design of your farm and how you're going to really center biodiversity? Like, do you think that this is a form of luxury that most farmers don't have? And do you ever imagine yourself relying entirely on your farm? And do you think that would change something about the way you go about it, about your economic decisions and how you weigh them against environmental decisions? I have, uh, in my plan, in my design, I still have two years before the farm will be economically sustainable. And uh, no, I don't think I would change any of my uh, perspective or the vision I have about farming, thinking about relying entirely on my farm uh, life, let's say, on my, on my farm work. Um, it really is about... I think uh, thinking about diver diversity is not um, something that some farmers can't, mm, let's say, do and others can. It's really just a choice, you know, and it's based on the interaction and the dialogue with the scientists, with the people that do research. It's based um, on the fact of studying and doing research by ourselves as farmers because it really is understanding what the landscape, the territory you're farming in, uh, is um, how the ecosystem where you're farming uh, is structured. So I would have so many things to say about even the wildlife, you know, pressure we have here in Chianti. I mean, if I can just take two minutes on this. I mean, it's, it's this, the landscape where I farm is uh, based on wine producing. Okay, so it's all wineries. And they fence out the whole landscape. And I've been discussing the last three years with the uh, neighbors, with farmers, and speaking about the fact we can't look at our farms as an, an independent autonomous system. So we have to think about the, the entire territory of our town, of Gaiole, or anyway, the Chianti region, and think about uh, the wildlife pressure we have is based on the fact that everyone is fencing out entire sections you know, of the territory. And um, if we instead started looking at the territory as a whole, we could create fences because we have to fence. I, I grow vegetables, so I have to fence my, my vegetable gardens, you know. And I understand the people that grow uh, grapes and they have to fence out their, their um, vineyards. But if we spoke about creating greenways, ecological corridors for wildlife, wildlife could move in the territory freely going through the different farms, you know, moving and feeling even protected by the woodlands that we have fortunately are very, I mean, they're abundant here. And 
it, the fact is we should just sit down with the local municipality, with all the farmers, even with the hunters, because we have a lot of hunters here in this in this region, and speak about thinking on a territorial you know, level about farming and conservation and actually creating greenways, ecological corridors for wildlife. I haven't fenced out all my farm. Uh, I have even fenced not on my boundary. I've left 12 meters, let's say, of woodland on my boundary. So animals pass, you know, um, freely and they feel protected by the woodland. And I, I've never had any problems with the wild boar, with deer. And I mean, it's really, it's just, a, it's just a matter of understanding, you know, what you're doing and how you can do it. It's about teaming with nature. It's not about opposing nature, you know, it, we're not in contrast, you know. So it's it's really about teaming with nature, with the ecosystem. That's great. Um, I'm just looking, I think we, lo did we lose someone? Okay, we suddenly lost Andrea. I'm just gonna push you a little bit further on this question because I wish it was that way, but obviously, there must be obstacles to farmers um, adopting a more biodiversity sensitive approach, even if it's not entirely permaculture, even if it's not completely systems thinking. But there, and, and we know there are a series of huge barriers to access to this kinds of thinking, you know, be it time. And I, I'm just wondering, can you perceive from inside from from the inside from being a farmer can you perceive where these obstacles are and in what in in and what are they made of would you be for instance able to convince all of your neighbors and if not why not okay yeah i i understand i i speak from a, a very specific perspective you know so i do get that and um but yes i i think it's just about Uh, um, sharing examples and my farm functions locally as a sort of example, you know, an ecological biodiverse example. Um, so I've had in the last year, a lot of local farmers, even big uh, wineries that I've come to visit and to understand what sort of uh, approach we have to farming. And um, they're actually very interested. I think the, the thing about the um, there are obstacles. I mean, I have obstacles uh, with the wildlife. I mean, we spoke about uh, deer and wild boar. My big problem on farm is uh, a badger. I have a, a couple of badgers. They You can't fence them out. They dig every night and they go in the vegetable gardens and they eat earthworms. Mm -hmm. And so they, they just, you know, pull up all the plants. Well, my solution, apart from sleeping on, on farm for one month, trying to, you know, chase them out <laughs> during the night, um, has been just, you know, shift. I, I water my gardens at four o'clock in the morning because at three, two thirty-three in the morning, they leave the farm. So they come in every night, but they don't find, you know, the moist soil. So they don't feel there's all the earthworms that are high up in the, in the first, you know, layers of the soil. And, uh, you know, I just shifted. I, I, I tried to understand the problem and found the solution in the problem, you know, saying, okay, so the badger moves out around 2.30 in the morning. I'll just water at 4.30 in the morning in summer. And that has, that has, has become a solution, you know. And I think um, local farmers and farmers in general, um, they, we just have to sort of share examples. And it is really um, incredible how... Uh, farmers don't have time maybe to do research by themselves. 
But when they see examples that work, they adopt them very quickly. I'm sure there are going to be farms in the next two, three years here locally that will start uh, accepting the idea of, of building, you know, of fencing, keeping in count the pressure of the wildlife and creating greenways. Because this is a discussion we're having locally. I'm, I'm very passionate about this and I'm taking this discussion locally on the, with the local government and with the farmers. And I believe in two years time we'll see some differences. I love your optimism. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can we please keep going in this energy? Um, I I agree with you. And I think that when you say that farmers need to see that there's a product or a practice that works, um, it also is quite utilitarian. As we went back to earlier, um, we always need to remember that, you know, a farmer is farming to make a living and that that is mostly uh, an economic question at least somewhere in in that thinking and in that daily life um and and most of you if not every single one of you in the debate so far um mentioned the stake of the value chain the agricultural value chain and how the sheer fact of enhancing biodiversity in the landscape in which you're working and then being able to measure that and show it to the consumer would increase um, the value, if not even the quality of the product itself. Um, so I'm just going to perhaps give to Diego the chance to, to, to comment on that. Yeah, uh, uh, sorry, I had a question uh, to Lorenzo, so just a curiosity. Oh, apologies. Go for it, Camilla. I didn't about, see your hand. About, it, about uh, the, the, the presence of uh, wildlife on his farm. So... Uh, Lorenzo, I was wondering what you think about these um, technological solutions that um, are coming up. Yes, let's say slowly, but there's there's a very big interest in it, also from a scientific point of view. The use of um, let's I don't know exactly how it's called in English ultrasound to in some way um, keep um, animals away from crops. Um, do you think, like, from the way you were saying it, uh, you want to team up with nature, so in some way you want to use natural ways to um, avoid that they come onto your crop and do harm? Are you in favor of that kind of solutions, or would you see that the same as fencing and therefore not very very much in line with teaming up with nature. Okay, thank you, Camilla, for the question. Um, yes, uh, locally, we have a lot of wineries that have put the ultrasound uh, uh, solution, that are starting to invest in that. It, it's interesting because they I mean, I'll just say something very, I mean, clearly, but I mean, we have this solution here and uh, some wineries have, have started using this uh, tool and uh, but it doesn't really work. I think there's still a phase of, of study and research that has to be done because then they just, you know, use mobile fences on the on the vineyards, even if they have the ultrasound solution. Um, so I don't think the solution of, of fencing out. One thing I'm very passionate about is would be living fences, you know. Uh, hedge laying in, in the UK is a typical traditional, you know, uh, solution. And you have living fences with the uh, uh, trees and shrubs that keep animals out. And uh, on the same moment, uh, on, on the, the hedge laying, the, the living fences, 
they create an ecosystem for small uh, fauna, for small animals, you know, for small wildlife. And uh, that could be a very interesting solution. We could team with nature, we could fence some, some portions of the landscape uh, using living fences, you know, and that's a solution that is uh, applied in the USA, in, uh, in North America, broadly, it's applied in UK. And it's, it's an, that would be an interesting tradition that we could take back, you know, in the 21st century, monitoring what is actually happening. I think ultrasound could be an, an interesting uh, solution, a technological solution. I'm not um, opposed to technology. Uh, we use appropriate technology in permaculture as designers, but I think we still have to do a lot of research and study on that, on that solution, that specific solution. Lorenzo, do you mean research to perfect that solution and to make sure it works well or other kinds of research around its potential impacts? Uh, I would say the first, yes, um, to try to get that solution to function uh, in a correct way because animals, animals understand that the ultrasound is, you know, comes in a, a specific uh, with a specific timing, you know, so every 30 seconds. So I, I've seen, you know, um, videos done by um, the video traps you have that film animals by night. They just learn and they pass every 30 seconds, you know, they know when, when the ultrasound is arriving. So probably we have to do research on how we can actually keep animals out. And we have to do research and understand if these tools are correct. So now that we're on the on the question of tools, I mean, I, I suggest we just go ahead and talk about tools a little bit more before we loop back to, to value chains. Um, in agriculture, I don't know if you guys saw this news, um, by the way, that uh, the US and the UAE proposed Aim for Climate, which is an agricultural initiative at the COP, a huge investment into agricultural robots. But I'm just going to um, give an opportunity to speak to Diego, perhaps, about which kinds of tools to monitor and favor and enhance biodiversity on a farm. Uh, usually we started from the smallest thing because, you know, uh, big mammals, it's really... Uh, they are perceived as a big problem and it's difficult to start with. You know, it's like to talk with wolf, with shepherd. It's it's almost impossible to establish a good con con conversation if you start from there. But uh, we worked a lot on uh, soil and uh, on insects. So uh, there are several uh, participatory monitoring activities. So it is apps that can be used for by farmers or by advisor to assess uh, like the soil condition, uh, the presence of uh, use, uh, beneficial insects, and uh, usually these activities is uh, connected with the terms of functional biodiversity. So how uh, the management, the good management of biodiversity at farm level, uh, it can support and facilitate the, the, the production and uh, increase also the sustainability of the production. So usually, uh, if we start discussing about, you know, soil health, there is a big interest uh, also by very conventional farmers uh, because uh, to maintain the soil fertility is, uh, is something that is, uh, is a common problem and they uh, would like to, to change their practices if uh, we can show the improvement. So having a set of tools allowing, that can be used as a training tools 
like you know, there are several apps that can support you on uh, performing monitoring activities like counting earthworms and or uh, um, analyzing uh, the soil fertility along the depth. And there is also a lot of uh, integration with the, this new gamification types of uh, uh, um, apps uh, that are already developed also in uh, for uh, natural from uh, naturalists that can uh, uh, support farmer in collecting more data and using this data to show to other farmer because as Lorenzo says I am pretty convinced that that's uh, the best way to convince a farmer to it's to show them an actual farmer that are doing that's a solved the solution a problem with some specific solution and uh, they see this and they can say okay i can move uh, this technology to my farmer so the peer-to-peer -peer connection is very important and usually technology can support in collecting data and showing our farmer data and also to do the self-assessment so i'm if i i can change my practices and i can use and i collect data to assess if my farmer uh, production is improving, if the, the pest problem are reducing and so on. Then um, another important uh, family of tools is decision support system. Uh, this is, uh, there are uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tools. This is a tools that can support you on uh, decide uh, how many water I have to use, uh, what is the best way to manage nutrients, what is the best way to distribute nutrients, uh, according with my soil variability. And uh, there are a lot of these tools, mainly for conventional farmers, but start to, uh, if uh, also um, uh, showing using these tools that some specific ecological practices can uh, reduce the amount of water and integrating this in the standard decision super system can also uh, a system that can support farmer in taking decision. And then I think it's it's important to because it's uh, uh, I think a fair way to manage about to manage to for so also for uh, support the development of good practices in farmers is also try to solve the issue of uh, multifunctionality. So uh, in a way, uh, the farmer they like uh, to be seen also as a. Uh, as a sentinel for the environment, as a protector, guardians of the environment. Uh, the problem is that uh, if they have to pay directly by their own production, uh, you know, for some damages that can be uh, connected with the use of the increase of the wildlife, it is something that uh, uh, it has to be compensated in some way. So collecting information, so using uh, uh, a fair way to distribute the cost uh, uh, that can uh, uh, can be generated by uh, this type of activities is something that's uh, it can be interesting to 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 uh, improve the the farming practices. So I think it's very important the the certification, uh, the labeling of the production. Uh, it is something that is important. Also uh, for a wine producer, uh, showing. Uh, the respect of the environment by the production and so uh, collecting a set of information and uh, showing customer and buyer about their practices it can be a big plus for marketing reason and so I think that we need to uh, the, the, we need to find good solution because if something is uh, 
like for uh, functional biodiversity, if a specific uh, uh, agrobiodiversity management practices can improve the production, this is the thing that we need to push and using other farmer uh, to show as an example of this. And then uh, we need to try to find an innovative way to uh, assess uh, what is the beneficial from the environment connected with that practices and find a way to compensate farmer on using these practices. So this can be uh, a few examples of what can be do. Diego, I'm in for the app for counting earthworms. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a plus for me. Yes. Yeah. No, it is. It, it's, it's it's really interesting because it's uh, from the um, from your point of view. I I I I met with other uh, similar farmers. The main problem is that uh, usually you start from a very uh, you know, uh, low baseline, and you need to improve uh, your soil yeah. condition over time. And yeah. this is something important. I'm also interested in, I don't know if some uh, uh, landscape design tools uh, can support the, the the wildlife management. Because if you, you know, I, I'm, I'm a entomology background, so I work a lot on pests. And usually there are all these, these uh, um, uh, you know, planting something just to uh, to keep busy the pest and not covering your uh, uh, your crop. So, mm -hmm. if a group of farmer creates corridors and creates also spots that can provide food uh, for the wild animals, I think also this can be an interesting thing to think about to make a bit more compatible. So, uh, using geographical information system and satellite data to draw corridors and to define uh, if you can uh, uh, control in some way the movement of wild animals. That, I don't I know if that would, would be ideas. That, that would be exceptional because I think the big problem is when we speak about this this aspect of wildlife, you know, we don't have the we don't have the vision from the air, you know, from up. So if we had, uh, as you said, just uh, you know, all the landscaping tools that are existing, and uh, we, I think, if there was a, a sort of, there was a, a solution, a technical solution that you know, you sort of look at the landscape. I think even farms could see that you could actually notice that we could reduce fencing. They wouldn't have to fence more because they have to fence small parcels of land you know but i think we could actually create corridors finding the the fastest solution to make wildlife to cross a, a certain portion of territory you know? so i think that would be really interesting to develop something like that on a, on a given region and do a study on that and then make this study something that one can replicate you know using the the diverse uh, technological solutions we have nowadays which can really let us understand where animals want to cross because I mean, yeah. animals follow certain paths and that would be really interesting, you know, to understand. And that mm -hmm. would create the possibility then for farmers to, you know, team up together. And probably, you know, you just have to add my fence to your fence and we can leave a greenway, an ecological corridor. That would be very, very mm -hmm. interesting. What I find really interesting in, in, in the debate that you guys are having is the the fact that knowledge here is is the key that that sharing this knowledge can already be empowering and that passing through the scientific route somehow can evoke and awaken respect um in these communities is that does that sound right for me absolutely yeah yes i agree yeah 
sharing knowledge, sharing experience, and uh, uh, interact with the research. Yeah. And, and I think it's even obvious because, I mean, on a certain level, uh, those that create, you know, the tools, um, maybe they have to come out on the field. So they have to speak to farmers, you know, to understand what is actually what farmers need and what uh, what problems they have. I mean, as, as Diego was saying, you know, working on soil, I mean, soil is so important, understanding the microorganisms, you have the bacteria, the fungi, and, and really, you know, getting to understand how soil is functioning. And, and on that side, on that level, if I think about soil, for me, I mean, in, in on my farm, and in general, I think, if we want to create an agriculture that is sustainable, is regenerative in certain ways, and functions with uh, functional biodiversity, water is so important the moisture you have in the soil. So monitoring the, how much water you have and reducing even the waterings you do, you know, for the crops. That is, and um, there's so many tools in that sense today, but I think it's still something that we should, you know, sort of, um, you know, bring clearly to the farmers because that would be so important because we have the climate crisis and we have problems with water. We have so many problems with how the rain patterns, you know, are changing. And uh, I think farmers on that are still sort of, we're, we're sort of slow to change our, 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 you know, methods we use in watering. And uh, that is such a crucial aspect, you know, that we should. And, and I think that would just get all of us around the table, you know, finding solutions really quickly. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you on that. And I was a little bit surprised, but in the end, not that much to hear Diego talk about using soil biodiversity tools with conventional farmers. And again, and water is like, it's something that on a utilitarian level and in terms of like cost reduction and sustainability in the long term, these are tools that, you know, it's 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 very obvious um, that you could connect with a farmer on, on that. But then I get quite surprised when you guys talk about um, making a greenway. How do you, you know, like, can you also pass through this kind of utilitarian logic to talk about wildlife and big mammals with farmers? How do you convince them that there's a use to this? Yeah, this is a yeah, bit, yeah. I think it's, a, I agree with, uh, with Lorenzo that uh, uh, soil, uh, water management is a good starting point to put together also different type of agriculture. For uh, the the effect of environment, uh, I think it will be a bit more tough. You know, usually, at least for from the standard point of view, they say, okay, uh, the, the traditional farmer usually have this vision. I'm spending a lot of time. Uh, I will reduce the risk of uh, wildfire. I will reduce the risk of erosion, and uh, I get no paid by this. So usually. The discussion is that how it's possible to do this. Usually, there is, uh, you know, the the, the direct the, the 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 response to this is to on the CAP. So let's create some uh, uh, way to compensate this. But it start to be, you know, uh, a lot of uh, paperwork connected, and and we know that uh, this will not be some solution. I think that uh, with with as Lorenzo say, probably. Uh, mm, uh, put it together, farmer, and to if you can demonstrate that uh, creating a corridor can actually reduce the risk, or uh, I'm using fencing not to present to to protect you know my small garden, but I'm using fencing uh, in a smart way together with other farmer, and we can cooperate about this. 
I think this can be a solution. Will not be easy, but probably Lorenzo can. Uh, uh, what he says, it's, it's, it can be interesting to start to discuss, uh, like how tools can be used to work on this uh, landscape level, uh, putting together a lot of different users. Not easy to do, but it can be worth to try. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, well, one thing I've always discussed with my neighbors, I mean, all the wineries we have here in Chianti is, you know, they, they, have a, they pass a lot of their time and they spend a lot of money, um, you know, sort of uh, fixing fences because wild boars, you know, they just, you know, sort of ram through the fence and they pass, you know, uh, in, the, in the vineyard and then deers come behind, you know, because... And I've always tried to explain to these local farmers, you know, and, and my neighbors and the fact that, I mean, wild boars, they, they want to move freely, but they actually need access to waterways to, to drink. So they need access to water. And if we fence out the whole landscape, obviously animals will, you know, the, the pressure um, adds on, you know, so it's really difficult to, to and you just spend money. You're actually spending more money, I think fixing the fences so it's really something that i i believe in in this and I'm, I'm very passionate about it and i have a positive optimistic vision on, on this i think it's just something if a section of of a territory just starts to apply this vision and and discuss it and find the people on the on the side let's say of diego you know about you know understanding how to design on a territorial level I think it, it can be easily demonstrated that economically it's, it's you know, really, it, it has a sense because you will, in the end, you will spend less because we keep on adding levels of sort of security control, if you want to look at it under this vision, under this perspective, you know, uh, trying to keep the animals out. It's not about keeping the animals out. It's about keeping, letting the animals live in their landscape, in their ecosystem, and us as farmers and even as people that live in, in a rural landscape, uh, being part of the, the ecosystem. So where do we fit, you know, as farmers? Where do we fit in, in, in the ecosystem? Can we fit in the ecosystem? I believe we can, but we have to sort of not see the animals as a problem, but see the animals understanding what their necessities are. And in this way, we, we start from their necessities, from our necessities. I mean, we have to farm. We have to earn a living from farming. But I believe we can find solutions working together, thinking about the needs of every a person and every animal that is in the ecosystem. Sometimes you just want to let a, a silence um, after a statement like that. Um, it's, it's almost a perfect way to to finish and, and I think that we're going to slowly um, draw this to a close um, but b before we do I, I know that um, Camilla and, and Diego you were both getting interested in labeling in, in relation to, to biodiversity to really re reveal to the consumer all the work that goes behind the production of a farm product um, that not only respects but enhances um, its environment. Do either of you want to comment on on this possibility and what it would allow? Maybe Camilla? Yeah, I think this labeling is um, a very interesting way um, talking about bridges to bridge the farmer and the farm product to the consumer. 
and to communicate in a quite simple way to the consumer um, some implications of the product um, they are buying. Um, Labeling for biodiversity is, of course, from a technical point of view, very, very complicated uh, because it's very complicated to monitor biodiversity. I mean, if we talk about um, water use, uh, food, water footprint, carbon footprint, all that kind of things, it's um, it's a kind of a technical activity. Um, people found a standard way to do that. so. Maybe it's not 100% perfect, but at least there's a convention about it that you do it in a certain way and then products, products become comparable because you do it in the same way. So one is better than the other. And then what is the exact um, water footprint or carbon footprint? Okay, we, we can discuss about that. But biodiversity monitoring, because it's so diverse, it's very, very difficult. And... Um, it's very time consuming, it's very costly, it needs a lot of um, experts that know how to, that know to identify the uh, organisms and it can be soil organisms, it can be birds, it can be insects, it can be uh, plant species. And um, so that, that is one very, I think that's, that's a big bottleneck uh, in the development of biodiversity labeling. And I think to conclude that um, some upcoming technologies can become a very big help in um, bringing forward this biodiversity labeling. Um, for example, if you think about genetic barcoding um, of um, organisms, uh, that that could uh, it 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 would require a very big initial um, effort in. Uh, sampling and in genetically barcoding all these organisms. But once you would have your database, then it would greatly help um, people, farmers at any scale to understand what kind of biodiversity they have on their farm. And then scientists can analyze that information and also provide um, the functional implications on the agroecosystem of the presence of that kind of biodiversity. What do you mean by genetic barcoding? I've never heard of that practice before. Yeah, it's like um, trying to make a kind of a key uh, based on the DNA of species. So the DNA of species is unique. And so if you can link some DNA keys with the identification of the species, then just by analyzing the DNA, you can know which species or at least families are present. And so, for example, if you talk about uh, um, soil biodiversity, you could take a soil sample and then have this DNA extraction. And then the system, you would analyze the DNA present in that soil mm. sample, and that would provide you with a list of all the species that would be present but it sounds unbelievably difficult to set up diego do you have um do you have anything to to add to that before we move to closing remarks yeah yeah it's you know the main problem is how difficult it is to collect data to show the labeling usually the the first easiest approach is to working on landscape so it's uh, uh using uh, remote sensing and special data to assess uh, 
how uh, how uh, how complex is the landscape of my farm and concerning my farm the landscape connectivities is something that can be added to this to show not just uh, how diverse is you know the standard is to use you know the the uh, the ecological focus area that is already uh, mandatory by greening of CAP. But if we can uh, grow on this and show uh, how complex is my landscape and so how uh, I can, how my farm can support the generic uh, agrobiodiversity, this is something that can be done uh, almost automatically. And uh, the main problem is how to connect this to a specific label. Usually we had some experience uh, on uh, uh, user use uh, the app, they take picture, they count the earthworm, and then the results uh, be published uh, like on the QR code, on the olive bottle, just to say uh, how what is the strength of my farm and use this to differentiate my production with uh, something more conventional uh, product. So, uh, collecting data is very important. It's really interesting the, the barcoding because if you assess the the, the microorganism biodiversity or the small uh, arthropod biodiversity, this can be a good sign of the generic uh, wellness of the uh, farm and soil conditions. So this is something that uh, can be connected, but it requires uh, a strong connection with uh, with all the uh, the food chain and also find a way to uh, to provide with some uh, economic compensation to farmer for their practices. Lorenzo, would you like to comment? Uh, yeah, just really briefly. I think I, I find this discussion about the biodiversity labeling really interesting. And I just think one thing as a, because I'm a consumer, not only a farmer, I think labels tell stories. I mean, it's cultural. I mean, it's something that we should just sort of build, you know. Uh, consumers are not, uh, it's not that they're not interested. It's that labels have just become, you know, just something that just gives us, you know, sort of the ingredients of something we buy. Instead, I think in farming, it would be really easy if you want. We collect the data and we we take that data, we transform it into stories. We, we transform it into something that expresses, that tells us something. So as a consumer, I know I'm buying something different, not just because there's some data, but that data is expressed to me in, in a way that inspires me. I think food is inspiring. It's cultural, you know, and I, I just think this could be one, one interesting way to look at it. That's just a, a, a really great way to, to round that up. And I'm just going to open it even further out um, to, to just give each one of you an opportunity to Perhaps if you have any, give any closing pieces of advice uh, for young people who are maybe just coming out of their studies or who are coming into the adult world and who are, you know, looking at our series of environmental crises. Um, do you have anything that you would like to say to them, whether they're invested in this question of conservation and agriculture as a consumer or thinking about being a practitioner? Diego, do you have anything to say? Not easy. I, I think uh, probably to share, to find and share their ideas. Uh, it's uh, uh, you know after uh, forty, probably thirty-five, you start to stop <laughs> uh, trying to to find new idea. You say okay, that we have tested everything. So I think it's 
um, it's interesting to have a push and to to have a new idea to be that need to be tested, but uh, can be solve some uh, uh, real problems. So I think it's to sharing their concern, but also their proposal or idea or how can we improve what we've done. Thank you. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a bit cheeky. Um, do you have any particular ideas that that make you hopeful when you think about biodiverse farmlands? Um, I think that um, the sustainability is uh, something that uh, start to be an issue for farmers. So uh, the awareness that uh, they need to be more sustainable is something that uh, we have not to push anymore. They they know, and so they are eager to have a solution. So as a solution provider, we need to uh, me researcher university. We need to find new solution because they are aware of the problem. So this is a good thing because it's the first step to actual change. But then uh, uh, some some issue has not a solution yet. So we need to work more. Thank you. Speaking about solutions, Camilla, do you want to have a little comment? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Diego that, uh, that farmers are aware and it's up to us to connect better to them and find more appropriate solutions for um, that, that are compatible with the activities that they perform. And I want to add to this that I think, um, I mean, I like diversity in the nature, but I also like diversity in farming. So I would... Now, as a as a scientist, I would never advocate for like uniform farming systems, saying that oh this is perfect and this is not good. I think we really need to to learn to um, appreciate diversity of all kinds, also in farming. And there are regions where um, the type of farming that Lorenzo, the permacultural that he's bringing forward is really adapted and it's really in line with that kind of landscape and that kind of community. And I think there's other um, locations, other regions where different types of farming are more appropriate and more adapted to the whole local cultural background and the um, abiotic background and the, the whole biodiversity um, situation. So, it's really for me a question of helping people to find the best way to interact with their local ecosystem and their local develop their own local agroecosystem. And um, I think the communication between farmers that Diego and Lorenzo were talking about before that is really a fundamental aspect um, of finding this local identity. And if I can give an advice to young people that are interested in um, biodiversity, uh, management, environmental issues, farming, it's really that they, they need to follow their passion. Because whatever you do with passion, in some way it works out and in some way it will bring you somewhere interesting. Thank you, Camilla. And Lorenzo, would you like to close? Yeah. Um, okay. So I agree with what Camila and Diego were saying, and uh, I love one thing. I, I've stopped speaking about best practices. I speak about specific practices. So we have to think about the context where we are actually farming when we are speaking about farming. 
And uh, for the people that, for young people that have finished studying, and um, one thing I always uh, sort of share is follow your passions, ask questions, you know, uh, be be cheeky, be, you know, to ask ask the questions. There's never um, a wrong question. There's only the question we don't ask, and uh, we have to ask questions. And the, one thing I always think about is study. Keep on reading, keep on uh, visiting farms, visiting uh, local communities. One thing I always say is, for me, reading and studying, doing research, reading books is uh, incredible, is, has helped me because I've, I've, you know, self, I'm a self-taught farmer and I started five years ago. And uh, I always say that books are the organic matter that builds uh, mind fertility. It's like organic matter in soil. And we have to always uh, ask ourselves questions, never stop. I'm 45 and I feel like if I was 22, probably, because I'm curious. Curiosity will uh, help us to find solutions to the questions we have. And that's us done. It's such a shame that Andrea somehow dropped off the network, but I think that we've got everything we need in the box. If you'd like to turn your camera back on, we can wave goodbye. But it was cool. I hope, did you guys enjoy it? Was it okay? I was nodding for the past hour, you know, sort of when uh, Diego <laughs> yeah, was yeah. speaking, and Camille, Andrea, I was going, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was actually, you know, that's, that's, sort of, that's, that's why I was there. Uh, <laughs> So Andrea just wrote me a message that the um, electricity in the whole building went down. So oh, he did oh. not have any way to connect through any anything. Great. Sorry for that. Yeah. Uh, Lorenzo, I will contact you because it's... Okay. Uh, yeah, there are some also... Um, because there are some uh, projects on designing solution for agroecology. And mm -hmm. it's important to have some strong voice from the farmer point of view. And okay. I think it's it's interesting, also interesting that you interact a lot with the more conventional farmers, so you know how tough is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, always... tough is, so it is, it is uh, you know, a good point of view to to do this. It's yeah, yeah, and, and absolutely, it would be a pleasure. And I'm optimistic, just to even tell Alexander, I do get angry, but it's yeah, I think it's. We have to do this. I mean, the point is, you know, it's not, it's not we can or we cannot. We have to do it. Our show is a podcast from Taskape Media hosted by Alexandra George-Pico, who's also an assistant producer, and Theodore Simmons, who produces and edits the series. The production assistant is me, Beatrix Keeler. Alistair Simmons is our executive producer. Our thanks to all who've been involved in making the show possible. <laughs>